Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to sing your praises and declare your worth. You have been a good father knowing how to give good things to your children. You have been a patient father as you have forgiven us our sins and have guided us through your Holy Spirit. You have been a loving God in sending your Son to acquire our salvation. And you have been a merciful God forgiving our sins and pouring your wrath on the Son. We come before you this morning to give thanks for our earthly fathers. They have been a gift from you to us. Though imperfect, they have served your purpose in directing our hearts towards you. We pray this morning that you would encourage all fathers in the discharge of their duties. May they see the special gift and privilege and responsibility of being a father. We pray for the salvation of all fathers here this morning. Bring them into the family of God. May they taste and see that God is good. May they repent of dead works and turn and trust in the works of Christ. We pray for the spiritual growth of all fathers this morning. May they continually seek the kingdom of God. May they desire more of you each day. Make and mold them into the image of Christ. We pray for their families this morning. Strengthen them and cause them to love his family as you have loved us. Let them seek his family's good as he seeks his own. And take away all pride and selfishness and anger and resentment and lust that may divide his attention. We pray for their vocation. May they find favor not only with God but with man. Let them be a witness for God in their workplace, in their neighborhoods, in their friendships. May they declare the goodness of God in all of their doings. And we pray here for the men here today that will become fathers in the future. Let them see that their duty is to follow you with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Prepare them now for the day when they say, I do, and eventually hold their children for the very first time. You have been so good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5 as we begin a new chapter looking at the divine deliverance and redemption as we continue the later Galilean ministry of Christ in the account of Mark. As a matter of view, last week we saw that the storm on the Sea of Galilee gave us two views of Jesus, you might recall. First was His humanity as He was exhausted after healing and teaching. And secondly, we see Jesus' divinity as He demonstrates authority and calms the storm. We also learned that the storm was used by God to expose both the disciples' weak faith and Christ's power as Lord of all creation. Mark's accounts particularly points to the problem was not their fear of the storm, but doubting that Jesus cared. And this is echoed in their words when they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We ended by understanding that as Christ's followers, we can trust in God's love and His power. And I pray this morning, that as you went through this week from last week's message, that you saw the goodness of God in your walk of life. 
no matter if it's been in the high mountains or in the deep valleys, that you see the goodness of God when the seas are calm and when the seas are turbulent. But now as we move on to chapter 5, Mark is going to describe two stories that details Jesus' interaction with a man suffering from demon possession, a man seeking Christ's help and healing his daughter, as well as an interruption with a woman of great faith. Today, though, we'll focus on the man who was enslaved with many demons. And Father, as we open your word, I pray that you'd give us wisdom in the sermon. Let us discern the difference between my opinion and Lord, your word. And I pray that it would settle deep down into good soil that will find deep root and it will grow and be watered by the Spirit and by others and may it see much fruit. And Lord, I pray that you would give us listening ears and open eyes spiritually, Lord, to discern your truth. And may we respond boldly and with courage what your word would call us to do so today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We can give some observations from the passage, which we read it a little bit earlier in our scripture reading. But again, I want to give you just a few things to help us as we work our way through this passage. The first was a setting, and we see that in verses 1 through 2, is we see that Jesus had came to the other side of the sea. After the calm of the storm, they wind up going to the other side, to the country of the Garcinians. And when Jesus had stepped out of that boat, ready to, to do whatever he had wanted to do there, he was immediately met by a man out of the tombs, which is described to us as a man with an unclean spirit. Now, I kind of wanted to kind of give you kind of a map of what's going on here. He made himself from the west side of Galilee to the east side. That makes up the Decapolis. Now, this population was largely Gentile. This is evidenced by the presence of a large herd of pigs, an animal that was considered ceremoniously unclean, it was not lawful for the Jews to eat. The Decapolis was a, a league of ten cities that enjoyed autonomy from Roman rule. They were a little bit freer than the other side of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, mainly, once again, a Gentile population. Once Jesus and the disciples disembarked from a boat, they were met by a man who was possessed by a spirit. And he comes to confront Jesus on that shore. So that's the setting as Jesus is moving to a different area of ministry. What we see now as we look at this man, the verse passage shows us with the man's condition. Look at verse 3 through 5. And it said that this man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Very strong. Not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched apart the chains. And he broke the shackles in pieces, seeing of shackles being on your wrist. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Mark here now is describing the terrible condition of this man. We're not given this man's name, just a description of the effects of the demon possession had on him. The editor of the ESV Study Bible observes that this man's demonization is evident in his social isolation as he's away from the crowds, his superhuman strength, and his self-destructive tendencies. Pastor and radio host Carl Gallup says, I know that some people will have a difficult time with all this talk about demons. But the truth is that the Bible is clear on the topic. There is a demonic evil 
an incredibly dark spiritual side to the experience of human existence. We most often see the results of demonic activity played out on the stage of human affairs. But never doubt the impetus is often initiated in the realm of demonic influence. You see, demons here are bent on destruction. I believe that's one of their telling signs. My opinion is that they often cut, mark, and destroy our bodies in attempt to mar the image of God. You may recall that many of the Canaanite gods and those that worshipped them would cut themselves to try to appease their gods. They would mark their bodies and they would do different things, send their children through the fire, sometimes to their death, but sometimes just to mar their figure. And I think many times you see that type of demonic influence. Again, this is my personal opinion, is I believe that's many times what's around this self-esteem issue of women and men who are trying to cut and remake their body into something different than what God has created them to be. I believe it's behind many of the things in which people who believe their different gender that they are and they're willing to even allow their children to be cut and marred for a lifetime. I believe that Satan and his demons seek to destroy all that God has called good. This man's life was awful. Mark details his suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, and socially. This man was an outcast. None would want to go near him. He was considered less than human by those around him. Nothing that they do could do could subdue him. They tried in vain to control and subdue him. He his cries echoing throughout the night among the cemeteries in the mountains of that area. You could imagine someone at night walking through or traveling and just hearing this man's howls and his cries. I don't know if you've ever been into some of the facilities in which people that are in that type of agony and pain. But let me tell you, those cries stay with you. It's disturbing. This man's life was in a mess. He was suffering in every way. We must remember, as Wayne Grumman writes, that demons are real. Demons are evil angels who have sinned against God and who continually work evil in this world. They are beings with no hope of grace nor salvation. Their end is written and cannot be changed. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, writes that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling says they have been kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Matthew, the apostle in his gospel, quotes Jesus in remarking to the wicked, where he says, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There are demonic influences in this world today. This article that I read earlier by Charles Gallup was referring to Mexico, in which there are people who are praying that the demons from Mexico will be exercised. And I won't make a personal comment there. Many times I think we see demons where they're not, but I think more times than not, we do not see the demonic influences and recognize that the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, amen, but against principalities, against powers. Hence why I share with people, your struggle is not with your spouse. The trouble in your family is not with your children or your boss, but with those that's behind them. Not that they're demon-possessed, don't mistake that. 
But we need to recognize that there is influences there that try to darken our door and try to mar us and, and keep us from doing what God has called us to do. But their end is written and cannot be changed. Knowing this, that that is their end, they seek to do all the harm that they can do. Knowing that their end is a sure punishment and an exile to the lake of fire explains the next passage that we're going to read in verses 6 through 13 of Mark chapter 5 as Jesus interacts with these demons. And when he saw Jesus from afar speaking of the man, he ran and fell down before Jesus and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me, for you saying him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He said, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we will be many. And he begged him earnestly, do not send me out of the country. He gives a description of a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. We'll see later, it's 2,000 at least in number. And he begged him, send us into these pigs so that we may enter them. We see in verse 13 that Jesus gives them permission. And unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steam bank into the sea and drowned. As Jesus begins to cast the demons out of this man as they're coming forward, they attempt to control Jesus by naming and identifying him. And we had spoken about this later. There was this ancient history and ancient belief that if you could name something, you could control it. And in this case, they're trying to get control of Jesus in their twisted and demonic minds, they thought that they could thwart Jesus' authority. However, they're sorely mistaken. In verse 6, we see them paying homage to God as they kneel before Him by falling to their knees. However, it was not in a form of worship. It's not a mistake. They're identifying Jesus as worship, but mocking. The demons grudgingly show respect to Jesus because they recognize who Jesus is and His superiority. Knowing that Jesus has authority to send them to the abyss, to send them out, they beg Jesus to leave them be. Ironically, the torturers now become the tortured, in which they seek mercy. In verse 9, Jesus asks the demon's name. And again, not to be mistaken, this is not because he needs to know their name to cast them out, but I believe to give us evidence of the extent of this poor man's suffering. The demon replies that his name is Legion. Now, whether that was his real name or not, we do not know. It probably was more a reference to how many demons possessed this man. For he says, we are Legion, we are many. A Roman Legion at that time consisted of up to 6,000 men. The witnesses to this event would have readily understood the severity of this man's situation, understood now why this man was so powerful and why he was so tortured and could not be subdued. Again, they're not wanting to be cast into the abyss, not wanting to be cast out, not to be judged before their time. They beg Jesus, please send us into these pigs. I ask, why these pigs? Again, it's really not clear. As soon as they are cast out into the pigs, they send the animals to their death. However, it does for us give us tangible evidence of this man's healing 
as it usually isn't normal to see a herd of 2,000 swine start a stampede and take a nosedive off the cliff into the sea. And like me, as I shared last week, pigs can neither swim nor float. No reason is given on why Jesus permitted this and then sent the demons into the pigs, or even on the morality of Jesus doing this, knowing that this was somebody else's property. So I'm not going to tackle that. Mark's account here isn't of that. The point of this event is the evidence of Christ saving this man from demon possession. In this case, deliverance from a host of demons. And I want to be careful because many people will come to these passages where Jesus cast out demons and they want to make a doctrine out of them. And we have found ourselves at times falling into that trap. And there are whole sets of deliverance ministries that will do these types of things of, well, you need to find out what the demon's name is and then you need to do this and then you need to cast them out. This is not about a doctrine of demons, okay? This is not about how you and I can cast out demons. The Bible says that we can, amen? He says that we have given power over them. The disciples were able to do so. Before Christ, there were Jewish exorcists who do that. And interesting, I don't know if you follow newspapers and things of that, is that even in the Catholic Church, you'll see that there's an uptick, a rising of exorcism or attempted exorcisms. Scary stuff. Things that we need to be careful with. So instead of looking for demons for everywhere, let's recognize that they're there and they're behind many, many things. I think when you see widespread destruction, whether it's of a thing or whether it's of a person, many times I believe there's probably demonic oppression going through there. We should be careful. We need to be in prayer for this. But then we see the reaction and response of the people, and I think this is where we're narrowing down. This is what's going on. Jesus casts the demons out. He sends them into the pigs. They run off. They kill themselves. Where the demons go, I do not know. It's not the point of the story. But we see that the man is delivered. Amen? We see that Christ has compassion on this man. Whether he was a Jew or not, we do not know. The population is mainly Gentile, but he could have been. doesn't really give us. The point is Jesus cared for this man, saw that he could do something about it, and did what no other man or men could do. But now let's get to the point as we see here, as Mark narrows on, on the reaction and the responses of the people. Verses 14 through 20. Let's read this, and we'll read this a little bit more carefully than I did the last one. It says, The herdsmen fled, and they told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the man or the one who had the legion sitting there, and he was clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Here's what happens. Here's what you missed. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus, though, to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with them. He did not permit him, but said to him, but said to him, and I think said to him, oh, you know what? I, I cut that out. So where are we, where are we at? I cut that out of my notes. And said, and he went away and began to proclaim to the cop, the copless how much Jesus had did for him, and everyone marveled. What a spectacle this must have been! Word had spread quickly of what had happened. People came out to see what was going on. It must have been a big surprise to see this man sitting down with Jesus, not naked or torn up, but dressed in clothes. 
and carrying on a conversation. Noticing that the pigs who were normally there in the fields were missing, recognizing that their livelihood and food source was gone and wasted. You can almost imagine their surprise. What happened? What is going on here? They didn't respond as we're going to see here very well. For in this part of the passage, we see two reactions, responses. The first is the fear and rejection of the population. Fear of the people, the fear of what Jesus did, the ignorance of who Jesus is, and the selfishness and resentment that the cost of the man's deliverance was their herd of pigs. They cared much more for the pigs than the man. The man had been a nuisance and probably a source of trouble, but the herd was worth a lot more to them. The cost of this man's deliverance was way too high for their taste. They rejected Jesus. They were fearful of him. They were ignorant of who he is and what had happened. However, the second reaction is, I think, is where you and I want to be. Because there are many people, when they see the works of Christ, they fear and reject what they do not know. They have an ignorance of who he is. They have a selfishness to the cost of Jesus' deliverance. They want nothing of it. I remember once talking to a young man when I was a youth pastor, and I said, listen, you've heard the truth. You know the truth. You know what Christ has done for you. You've heard the call. Today is this day of salvation. Would you accept him? And I still remember his voice saying no. And I said, why? Why won't you accept him? He said, the cost is too high. I want to live my life now. If I follow Jesus, it's just too high. And I'm afraid there's some of you that are responding to Jesus in the same way. You've seen His deliverance and His work in those around you. Maybe you've even had a taste of God's goodness and Christ's work and the Holy Spirit in your life. But yet you look at the cost and say it's way too high. You prefer the swine rather than the goodness of God. And I would challenge you today, see the goodness of God. The second reaction response is that of the man who was delivered. His view, his perspective was much different. He responded with gratitude and worship. He begged Jesus for permission to follow him. He saw his deliverance. He recognized what the cost was, but he recognized that it was for him. He had a taste of Jesus' authority and power, and he desired more of it. How about you this morning? Are you like this man where you taste God and you want more of it? Instead, Jesus told the man to stay behind and to share his story, his testimony of how Jesus delivered him. And he did, and the result, as we saw, was that everyone marveled at what Christ had done. Interestingly, Jesus' command, as a side note, to give witness has been much different from Jesus' interaction with those that he healed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, is it not? What did he tell many of those that he healed and cast demons out of? What did he say? Shh, don't say a word. Don't tell people what's done here. 
Most likely that was because Jesus knew that this mainly Gentile population would not respond to the Messianic cult, so to speak, that infected Jerusalem and the other Jewish populations that Jesus normally ministered. Jesus knew what was in people's heart. And on the other side of Galilee, there were people who were wanting a king. And so anyone who came up, Jesus was not the first and Jesus wasn't the last. That they tried to say, well, look at this man, let's make him king. They were thinking more politically. They were thinking more ethnically. They were thinking, this is the one who will deliver us from tyranny and from political control of the Romans. However, Jesus' deliverance was not from political or ethnic or national deliverance. He's delivering people from something so much greater and better. In this account, not only does Jesus deliver this man physically, from demon possession, but he also redeems this man's soul for eternity. And as we read this story, we just see the torture of this man. But many times we're so driven by the demonic influences and everything else that's going on, we forget that what Jesus does is not only deliver this man physically, but he saves this man's soul in eternity. He took care of this man's immediate need but He also gave him something much better. He gave him salvation. And here's the news I believe that Mark is trying to point out with this, is that Jesus has done the same thing for you and I. You may not have a legion of demons, though there may be some of you sitting next to Him, say, I know what His problem is. I understand it now. But we all have struggled under the enslavement of sin and death. We've all been enslaved by Satan. But Jesus has done the same thing from us or for us. Through Christ's death and burial and resurrection, we've been delivered from the works and the enslavement of the devil. He says that I've destroyed the works of the devil. You and I may not have suffered from demon possession, but we've all been delivered, amen, by the mercy of God. Take your Bible, if you wouldn't, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Because we need to understand what has happened to us. For we are like this man that was demon-possessed. Paul reminds the Christians at Ephesus in chapter 2 that they were once dead in the trespasses and sins. And once you once walked, you were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. Just like this man, we've done the same. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In verse 3, Among we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You and I must get a new perspective on who we are. For some of us, we want to reject or fear God because of what He's cost, but it's because we do not see who we once were. We were dead, we were enslaved, we were objects of God's wrath. And if the story were to end there, we would be people without no hope. We too would be people just walking around cutting ourselves with our howls just echoing throughout the canyons. But, in verse 4, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen? By grace, you have been saved. And this is what has happened to this man. Jesus didn't say, clean yourself up first. Get yourself right with me. Dress the part, then come to me, and then I'll clean you and I'll heal you. This man was incapable of doing that. There was a part of him that saw Jesus and ran to him, and then there was another part in the control that just wanted to mock and reject Jesus. And you and I were very much the same way before we came to Christ. Verse 6, And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only has He forgiven us, but He's brought us into His family and He's made us heirs with Christ. He did not have to do that. His mercy is enough that He would saved us, but He did more than that. He lets us set at the feet of Jesus just as this man is setting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Him in His right mind. Look at verse 6. He's raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Why? In verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us. Christ Jesus. Jesus was kind to this man when everyone else saw someone they needed to subdue and bind. Jesus saw this man as one who he wanted to love and show his mercy while others ran and kept their distance. Jesus saw a man worth dying for on the cross. This was a man that Jesus not only healed, but he allowed himself to be beaten and spit on, brutally murdered on that cross. In the same way He sees us, dead in our trespasses, but yet willing and desiring to do so. In verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And let me tell you, this mercy, this grace, this wondrous work of deliverance should cause you and I to follow this man's example. We should respond with gratitude and worship. Like this man, we need to sit at the feet of Jesus, listening to His Word and giving thanks for Jesus' work on our behalf. It's so sad when I meet people who profess Christ, who have no gratitude and no heart for worship. They're too busy to come on a Sunday morning. They're too busy to lift up the Word of God. They're too busy to pray. They're too tired to celebrate and do life together with other Christians. Let me tell you, I believe the mark of someone who is truly regenerate is someone who has gratitude and worship for what Christ has done. Let me ask you, what's your gratitude barometer today? How high is your worship? It depends. Do you look at what it costs to be a Christian and look back like Lot's wife and say, boy, I wish I still had some of that? Or are you the one who looks forward and say, whatever was there is waste. I'm heading this way. This man didn't care. He couldn't get out of the tombs fast enough. There's some Christians today that still go around and just stand in their filth who still desire those things. Let me share with you, gratitude and worship 
will change your life. And like this man, we should obey God's command to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has mercy. I don't know if you're still in Mark 5. If not, go back to it. And I'm going to ask you to go back to that verse. And I want you to underline it. He gave this man a precursor to the Great Commission. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And let me share with you. Here's where I want to zero in on this morning very quickly as we come to the end. Your story is an important tool for sharing the gospel and sharing Christ. I call it the second greatest story ever told. We understand the old movie, the greatest story ever told was Jesus coming to earth, being obedient to the Father even to death. The second greatest story is what Christ has done for you. You may think, well, my testimony is not very exciting. It's kind of boring. My testimony is not powerful. Nothing wonderful or great has happened. I don't have one of those where I was delivered out of prostitution or out of drugs or anything like that. But let me tell you, your journey from darkness to light is a very powerful story and a miracle. It's a miracle of the new birth. Sharing our faith and proclaiming the goodness and mercy and grace of God is not an option for those that have been delivered and redeemed by Christ. Amen? Let me say it again. Proclaiming and sharing the goodness, mercy, and grace of God is not an option for those that are seeking the kingdom of God, but it's a command. We've been given it here. We've been given it in the four Gospels. Today, I'm going to ask you to respond to God's wonderful grace with gratitude and worship in sharing your testimony. Wherever you may be, God has called us to share the mercy that God has given on us. Are you like the man who sees where you've been and sees and recognizes what God has done and you're ready to share that with others? that they may too respond and marvel at what God does. Some may reject it. Some may just don't want anything to do with it. But there will be those that will respond to what God has done. I'm going to ask you with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to pause, consider, pray and respond. Would you pause a moment to consider what the Holy Spirit may be calling you to do this morning. Would you pray for His strength? Would you pray for His guidance? And would you this morning commit to responding to what He's calling you this morning? For some, you need to respond in worship and gratitude. Your life has not been marked of one who's grateful what God has done, who is leading a life of worship, of focusing on what He's done. And some you haven't shared your testimony. Would you commit to that this morning? And there may be some of you that are still enslaved by Satan. You're still dead in your trespasses and sin. You haven't seen the mercy of God. If you haven't, I pray today, would you do so today? Would you turn and repent of dead works, recognizing that there's no way to make yourself right before God, and turn and accept, that what Jesus has done for you has been accepted by God on your behalf. Would you make that commitment? This Father, you're so good to us. 
And many times we read these stories, we take them for granted. But Lord, we're like this man, not in the fact that we've been oppressed or demonized by many demons, but Lord, that we needed deliverance. We needed to be redeemed from our filth and from our sin and from our desire to follow the passions of our flesh. We thank you for verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, Father, that you reached down and you pulled me out of that. By Christ, you have delivered us from that. May they cause us to show gratitude and worship and share in our faith. Strengthen us for that task this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.